Hey, welcome back to the channel. My name is Steve Lund and today we're doing another Instagram Q&A. If you want to ask me a question, then make sure you follow me on Instagram at Steve Lund. Do it. All right, first question. Where do you buy your glycine and which brand? So uh, I don't have any specific glycine brand that I could uh, recommend and I don't uh, think that it really matters that much because glycine is such a like a generic supplement. So it's like hard to mess it up. It's like creatine monohydrate, like just the most generic the most regular um, run-in-the-mill kind of uh, creative monohydrate as well as a glycine is pretty much uh, good, good, and you don't have to like you know worry about uh, that much in terms of. Of course, yeah, some uh, brands are kind of w with worse reputation, but like most, like the most general brands like Life Extension, uh, Ostrovit. Um, there's things like No Foods, uh, whatever, like this very uh, whatever supplement brands are out there that have a good reputation, then uh, those are pretty much uh, good enough because it's such a, yeah, like a generic supplement that, uh, yeah, it doesn't require any, like, <laughs> extra effort in terms of, like, you know, selling because uh, it's just, if you ha if the only ingredient is glycine, then, yeah, it's pretty, pretty good in that sense. This episode is brought to you by Z-Biotics. Z-Biotics is a probiotic drink that breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for rough mornings after drinking. It's commonly thought that dehydration causes the horrible feeling in the morning after drinking. However, it's actually the buildup of a toxic byproduct of alcohol in the gut called acetylaldehyde. Zbiotics break down acetylaldehyde by producing an enzyme in the gut. Zbiotics doesn't make you feel less intoxicated or prevent a bad night's sleep, but it does prevent the sluggish feeling after drinking. Zbiotics is FDA compliant and tested. The only ingredients are water, patented probiotic blend and natural flavoring. It's available only in the United States and comes with a 100% money-back guarantee. Get 15% off your first order of Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic by clicking the link in the description box and use my code SIEM, S-I-I-M, at checkout. Go to zbiotics.com forward slash SIEM or scan the QR code on the screen right now and get 15% off on your first order. Best intra-workout drink so intra-workout means uh, during the workout, personally, I don't think that you really need like anything intra-workout. Most people are fine without drinking anything even. And yeah, like maybe like a small sips of water. If you get thirsty, that's a good, uh, you know, strategy. But, um, you know, generally you don't really need anything if you have hydrated before. So pre-hydration is significantly more important for the workout performance as well as just, yeah, like how you feel. And uh, for that, you need... Pretty much, you know, you need to boost uh, blood plasma volume, and for that, you need uh, large amounts of uh, liquid, water, as well as salt to like boost the blood plasma volume. Volume, and you know, the better, generally, like the best, like pre-workout sodium intake is gonna be around like thousand or even two thousand milligrams of sodium. If you're like really interested in pushing the envelope in terms of like aerobic and anaerobic performance, in studies they do find that uh, larger doses of sodium mixed with uh, like one liter of water even that's uh, provides like a significantly more uh, performance enhancing effect compared to getting only like 300 or 500 milligrams of sodium but uh, yeah like besides that if you're not <laughs> like an athlete you're not really you know su super into maximizing your performance at the gym which you generally like don't need to do that you don't need to like micromanage your workouts and you don't need to micromanage your nutrition to see great results um and even then, like for, for the average person, then it's going to be just, yeah, like just a little bit of salt, maybe like one teaspoon of salt. 
mixed with uh, you know 200 milliliters water, that's a pretty good uh, pre pre workout uh, hydration drink. But uh, for like a like a longer session, if you work out for over an hour and it's like pretty intense and you sweat a lot, then like a thousand milligrams is probably a better way to kind of prehydrate yourself and that also gonna improve your aerobic uh, performance. Next question. 10 grams of glycine, <laughs> exclamation mark and question mark, that makes me glycine scarface before bed. Uh, <laughs> so I guess, I guess it means that scarface reference is that, you know, you're like, you're doing white powder, <laughs> snorting in white powder, uh, like a scarface, uh, but, you know, of course you shouldn't snort <laughs> or inhale like glycine. Glycine, you take it uh, with a spoon and uh, you can have, you can mix it into some uh, tea or water or just put it into some uh, yogurt or cottage cheese. That's a very good uh, sweetener as well. But yeah, like you shouldn't snort <laughs> or inhale. Uh, glycine, but 10 grams of uh, oral glycine supplementation is uh, very good. Uh, and you know, in in 10 gram amounts, it's maybe pushing too much. Like three grams is the kind of the optimal dose in one sitting. But if you divide it, you know, into multiple times a day, then uh, 10 grams overall uh, over the course of the entire day is a good amount. Next question: How often do you eat, and how many calories per meal to stay as lean as you stay? Uh, so. Um, I eat one and a half meals a day, which uh, refers to my targeted intermittent fasting protocol. It's basically I eat one meal a day in the evening and uh, during the daytime I'll have a little bit of like protein in the form of some protein shake. I may eat, like bite on some carrot uh, or anything like that as well. So very small amounts. So I get like maybe 100 to 150 calories in the daytime, primarily from protein sources. And uh, for the reason for that is just... Uh, Better workout performance, better muscle growth, better recovery, and uh, things like that. And you know, it's better for muscle anabolism as well to uh, kind of have multiple protein ingestions during daytime. Uh, but uh, yeah, like the vast majority of the calories come in the evening. But even even still, my total daily calories for the day are probably around two thousand two hundred and two thousand three hundred or something like that. I don't uh, pretty much go into a, like a large calorie surplus. I maintain a calorie kind of. Uh, balance all the time. On some days I'll go in a deficit, uh, but yeah, it's pretty easy to stay uh, relatively lean or around 10% and less uh, body fat. And uh, yeah, with, with such a energy intake, I don't need to do like crazy amounts of cardio either. Although I do like to do cardio at least a few times a week. Next question, ways to lower ApoB. So ApoB, apolipoprotein B, and uh, apolip this ApoB is very uh, significant in terms of cardiovascular disease risk. I think it's actually even more important than uh, cholesterol levels. Although if you have higher cholesterol levels, then you probably also have higher ApoB and uh, vice versa. But so how do you lower it? You know, first of all, I would... Uh, Besides the fundamentals like exercise, good diet, sleep, uh, stress management, those things, uh, there's also like some significant, um, you know, problems that you may have. Of course, this is not medical advice. I don't know anything about you. I don't know who this person is. Uh, I don't know the context of the situation, but usually some aspects of like liver damage, kidney damage, and, um, you know, this kind of visceral fat can uh, raise your ApoB levels. So uh, for those, you know, you can you have to look a bit, a bit into how much carbohydrates you're eating, especially sugars, because those gonna have the biggest effect on the kidneys and fructose on the liver, as well as the visceral fat accumulation. So uh, yeah, I would look into cleaning up the diet and adjusting some of the 
you know, carbohydrate and even like fat intake, like excess fat together with carbohydrates, chances are you're probably, you know, not on a keto diet, but you're not on a like some sort of a vegan diet either. So you're probably somewhere in the middle, which where most people are at and that this can cause some problems with the way your body burns fats and carbs, you know, in different situations. So the Randall cycle describes which fuel your body uses in a given moment. And if you just have too much fat intake and together with too much uh, carbohydrate intake, then uh, that can have like some negative effects on your insulin sensitivity, which in turn can have like a negative effect on the visceral fat accumulation and kidney health and liver health. So these are the kind of the some of the things that I would uh, look into optimizing the diet of instead of doing like a high carb, high fat diet together, it's much important to do like cyclically. So doing like either low carb, higher fat or higher carb, lower fat diet and uh, cycling through there, of course, exercising regularly more, probably it's uh, warranted to do some uh, cardio as well, getting some sunlight exposure that's going to help with the lipid profile. And it could also be like magnesium deficiency, it could be chromium deficiency. So it's very hard (laughs) to know why does uh, the APOB elevate in this particular case with uh, limited information. Next question, I noticed that I can handle the sauna better in the mornings and not in the evenings. Why is that? So uh, it could be because of the uh, diurnal body temperature fluctuation. So your body temperature peaks in the evening, actually. uh, You have the highest body temperature around 6 or 7, 8 p.m., somewhere around there. And you also have the highest blood pressure at that time. So uh, it could be this. So just your body temperature already is a basal level is higher in the evening, which makes it harder to tolerate the heat as well. In the morning, like, uh, it could also be that the cortisol can somehow help you to deal with, like, you can numb some of the pain (laughs) from the heat or something like that. And, uh, yeah, it could also be just aspects of hydration. And, uh, yeah, but generally, I think the biggest factor is just the diurnal rhythm so that your body temperature rises. It's uh, higher in the evenings than it is in the mornings. Next question, foods to increase white blood cells in menopause women. <laughs> so that's, uh, uh, I wouldn't say that any specific food is the best for raising white blood cells. Uh, of course, yeah, you know, you need to make sure that you have a generally lower inflammatory diet. You don't consume foods that raise inflammation. And uh, for that, just, uh, you know, vegetables, uh, greens, uh, and getting some sulfurous uh, proteins as well. So like meat and eggs and fish. And cruciferous vegetables, they contain sulfur that raises your glutathione levels. Primarily, like, uh, sulfur is the biggest, uh, like, contributor to your glutathione levels from diet. And uh, other activities that also raise your white blood cells are exercise, fasting, intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, and saunas. So those three are the biggest. Uh, what I've seen from my blood work as well, that, that these three are the best for raising uh, white blood cells. If you have low white blood cells, then it could also be that... You just had an infection, so that just kind of lowers the white blood cells in that particular moment. But um, if you haven't had any infection, then yeah, exercise is probably a lot, very underrated in terms of the immune system function and the white blood cells specifically as well. Next question, does colostrum increase testosterone? Uh, not that I know of. Colostrum can be pretty good for like gut health. Uh, I don't, I mean, dairy products they don't have dairy products raise IGF-1, they can raise growth hormone maybe indirectly from that, but uh, they don't have like any specific like, um, you know, or direct effects on testosterone levels aside from the calorie content and aside from, you know, the saturated fat probably from 
from the uh, milk that you would get. Uh, but colostrum is like, you know, it's uh, isolated, so it doesn't have those, uh, you know, fats there that much, and it shouldn't have any like direct effect uh, on testosterone levels. Now, when it comes to commercial dairy, then uh, they contain these uh, estrogenic compounds because the cows are also like given estrogen and. Uh, in that case, it actually can lower the uh, testosterone levels uh, in men as well if you consume like uh, commercial uh, dairy. Next question, is touching receipts really dangerous? <laughs> so if you touch the checks and receipts that you get from the supermarket or restaurant, then they contain these uh, you know, plastics, xenoestrogens again, that uh, can cause hormonal disruption. They can cause fertility issues, at least those compounds in isolation. Now, touching a receipt probably is the exposure is very small, so it doesn't have any like immediate negative effect on your health, and it probably has no effect on your hormonal profile, but let's say you touch the receipt, you also microwave plastics, you drink out of a plastic bottle, you use personal care products, you use cosmetics, you uh, eat uh, Kerrygold butter <laughs> that also contains these forever chemicals, then uh, you know, it's a accumulation effect that you know, the more you are exposed to these things, the more you accumulate these xenoestrogens into your system and uh, that can, you know, over time, still have a negative effect. I wouldn't personally worry about receipts that much. Like, I mean, perf you know, ideally you should say no to the receipts of not touching them uh, because, I mean, it also like, it's just a waste of paper and waste of trees. So like, it's better to like not use that much paper if you don't need it. And uh, yeah, it also contains these xenoestrogens that in like a cumulative effect can have a negative effect on your like, you know, reproductive health and fertility. But in isolation, I wouldn't like start to, you know, worry that much. And if you do touch it for like, I don't know, a few seconds, you do take it and you throw it away, then I mean, yeah, like, it's not as significant. Ideally, you should, you know, say no, but I wouldn't start to again, become very paranoid about it. Next question, do you ice balls in sauna? <laughs> so um, I don't, I mean, like taking an ice cube or something like that to the sauna is not that's, you know, productive because it's going to melt super fast. Yes, it's going to cool down the balls uh, also, but uh, it's just going to melt uh, pretty fast. So it's not that, uh, I mean, it's not that needed. So the most important thing is to cool them down after the sauna. And you can use like some cold water you know, you have the bucket there in the sauna, you can use cold water to cool down the testicles uh, that way. But um, yeah, like if you have ice cubes, you put them on the testicles, then it's going to melt super fast. And if you have like the gel pack, you know, the uh, liquid, liquid uh, cooling gel, then I wouldn't uh, use that in the sauna because again, the plastics and the microplastics that, you know, <laughs> if you have the cooling gel, which is inside this plastic container, this bag, you put it on the testicles, then it's yeah, direct uh, microplastic exposure melting onto your testicles. So I wouldn't do that, <laughs> definitely not. So regular water, what I do is sit in the sauna. Regularly, I may have like a bucket of cold water, splash it on the testicles, and if I'm coming out of the sauna, then I'll just use the cold shower, take the, the shower head, cool water tsh, uh, on the testicles, that uh, cools them down for like one to two minutes, and that's, that's very, uh, I think, more convenient way of getting, getting it done. What's the safe upper limit of magnesium? So, I mean, the RDA is like 350 to 420 milligrams. Um, so uh, some people may need more. And, you know, how much magnesium you need depends on a lot of uh, factors. Like if you have insulin resistance, if you have poor gut health, you have IBS, IBD, diabetes, uh, all those things, you're chronically stressed out, you don't sleep enough, you sweat a lot, 
all those things <laughs> increase your magnesium demand. And uh, chances are, let's say you have the worst of the worst health, you have diabetes, IBS, all those things, you don't uh, have good absorption, then you may need even up to like a thousand milligrams of magnesium per day. Uh, but if you have like, you're healthy, you're exercising regularly, you eat a good diet, you don't have any poor glycemic control or you don't have any poor gut health, you absorb things well, you don't get loose stool, then uh, chances are you can get away with only 400 milligrams of magnesium per day and you don't even need to supplement it if you just eat magnesium-rich foods like uh, greens, uh, nuts, seeds, uh, fish and uh, things like that. Uh, but yeah, if you have severe gut health problems, uh, then uh, yeah, like supplemental magnesium can help to a certain extent, uh, but uh, you also need to fix some of the underlying issues that uh, reduce your magnesium absorption. So, so the fastest way to kind of, you know, absorb magnesium is obviously through uh, IV, so intravenously, but you absorb very little from the intravenous magnesium. Like healthy people absorb only like 2 to 8% of magnesium of the IV. But if you are severely deficient, then you can absorb up to 70% uh, because you are so deficient. Uh, so, you know, IV magnesium is probably the best and fastest way. But I would generally say, like, unless you have actual severe magnesium deficiency and diabetes and those things, then you don't need to IV magnesium either because you only absorb 2 to 8% anyway. Next question, cod liver oil, beneficial or rancid? So cod liver oil, I think it's a excellent source of vitamin A, vitamin D, omega-3 fatty acids. Um, and, but uh, it's also, yeah, like most of the commercial products can be oxidized and rancid if they are exposed to a lot of heat. And if it's like a see-through bottle in a plastic bottle as well, then uh, I wouldn't definitely uh, use that. But if it's a dark bottle and uh, it's a high-quality brand, I mean, it's very hard to find high-quality brands. The best one I've saw, seen is like uh, Rosita. Is I think it's Norwegian, and they have good quality uh, dark bottled cod liver oil as well. Uh, but if it's like the Mueller's, which is this green bottle, then it's probably oxidized because, yeah, it's just um, sitting on the shelf too much. And, uh, I mean, they add the flavoring there. That's th The Mueller's is a fish oil, not a cod liver oil. But still, like most of the fish, fish oils generally are rancid. So I wouldn't consume these uh, commercial fish oil brands. More like higher quality like the Rosita, cod liver oil, I think it can be worth it for sure, especially if you have poor lipid profile and you're not eating any fish. If you're eating fish at least, you know, three, four times a week, then you don't need any, any like additional like cod liver oil, fish oil either. That is personally, I think. Another similar question, would you choose wild caught fish or farmed fish in Scandinavia? Well, if you can choose, then of course the wild caught fish is definitely healthier and higher quality and more nutritious. So farmed salmon, yeah, can also contain different kinds of food coloring. I mean, first of all, they just feed it like this, you know, corn and uh, other kinds of uh, processed foods that uh, worsen the omega-3 profile of that fish. So it just doesn't have that much of these DHA and EPA as the wild-caught fish. And it also just uh, might contain like these microplastics and things like that. Uh, so I personally think that the wild-caught fish is obviously healthier you know, if you do eat farmed fish, it's not gonna kill you, but you shouldn't rely on it for actually boosting your... It's like, it's kind of like a... It's a bit like deceiving the farmed salmon because, yeah, you're not getting that much of these omega-3s and DHA and EPA. So, I mean, it's not... In moderation, again, it's not gonna kill you. It still gives you protein and stuff. But if you could always choose, then kind of more gravitate towards, uh, you know, freshwater uh, fish like like the ones like Atlantic uh, herring uh, salmon, 
uh, sardines, sprouts, and those kind of things, or sprats, not sprouts. The sprats is kind of the Baltic um, kind of herring or like a smaller uh, fish. Next question: Supplements to take to reverse temporary night shifts. So uh, night shift is uh, obviously problematic. It can have some negative effects. Uh, so from a supplement side, then uh, things like NAD boosters or NMN, niacinamide, niacin as well. Those things can be pretty good for realigning the circadian rhythms and helping with uh, the negative side effects of the uh, circadian mismatch, for sure. So like in the morning when you finish your shift work, or for, for example, then uh, taking the uh, niacin, niacinamide or NMN in the morning helps to realign the circadian rhythms and you know negates some of the jet lag that you experience. Other things uh, for the sleep loss are uh, creatine is very good. So the brain you know, uses creatine and uh, creatine actually reduces your sleep demand. So it actually works both ways, reduces the negative side effects of the sleep deprivation, while at the same time reducing the demand for getting sleep. Glycine, I think, is also very good in a similar way. So it can also counteract some of the negative sleep, uh, sleep loss effects, while at the same time bolstering your antioxidant defense and obviously with the collagen synthesis as well. And um, I mean, collagen, I wouldn't use collagen for the circadian aspect so it doesn't have any circadian effects but it uh, still has like obviously the collagen synthesis effects on the skin so you know if you uh, experience more oxidative stress and more inflammation from the circadian mismatch then um, you know you would want to get some more additional collagen to kind of rebuild some of the skin collagen for example how much do you currently weigh uh, right now i think i'm actually 80.5 kilograms which is around a hundred and 79, 180 pounds or something like that. And uh, yeah, I'm, I feel very good. <laughs> I'm pretty lean and uh, progressing at the gym at the same time. So yeah, I'm in a very good spot. Next question, what is best to gain muscle mass? Low intensity with high rep or low rep and high intensity? So all of the rep ranges generally do have a muscle hypertrophy effect. You can build muscle with doing sets of five or three even and you can also build muscle with doing sets of 12 and 15 so um, progressive overload is the biggest factor so you need to be just getting stronger over time and uh, mechanical tension even between 40 percent up to 90 and 100 percent all of them can have muscle hypertrophy effect so the higher the intensity you know the more powerlifting style workout you do if you do only sets of three or five then it has less of a sarcoplasmic hypertrophy effect, which refers to like sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is like your like a bodybuilder, uh, puffy, <laughs> like more more like uh, full fuller uh, muscles and uh, bigger muscle size. Whereas myofibrillar hypertrophy refers to the powerlifter look, so like smaller, dense, more tight <laughs> muscles. So both of them increase the amount of muscle you have. But the powerlifting look, you achieve that generally with like slightly lower repetitions, so like three to five, six at the most. And uh, the bodybuilder look, you get more from uh, eight to 12, maybe 15 reps um, per set. Next question, creatine, is it better pre or post-workout for fasted women? <laughs> um, I think uh, generally it doesn't matter, like any time of the day when you take creatine, it's going to be still raising your creatine stores and... Uh, helping with the benefits of creatine. Uh, there is some indication that post-workout creatine is better because it reset, like res replenishes your fossil creatine stores. But at the same time, if you take it before the workout, 
but and you haven't taken it post workout the day before that is kind of the same thing <laughs> pretty much uh, so i think it's the, yeah it doesn't matter like uh, generally if you get two to three grams as a female then uh, that's good enough and uh, mix it with water doesn't really matter when you take it personally i think it's just again micromanaging it uh, doesn't really matter that much all right so the last question is do you recommend use of sunscreen high uvi and want to keep young and healthy skin so personally i mean I've pretty much never used sunscreen except for a few times if I've been traveling near closer to the equator uh, in a warmer country. So here in Estonia, like, <laughs> I mean, it's most of the time there's not that much sunlight. And even in the summertime, I'm not exposed to that much sunlight on a daily basis that I would need to use any sunscreen. So that's personally what I, in my situation right now, if I were to be in a more equatorial climate where the UV index is uh, higher and you're exposed more to direct sunlight then I would probably consider using it at least uh, some parts of the day like especially where the, the sun is at the highest and where you're getting most of the uh, UV radiation. So it depends mostly on like how much sunlight are you exposed to in one sitting basically like how much time are you spending in the sun in one go if you spend like more than an hour like two hours or something like that several hours in a day of direct sunlight exposure like somewhere near the equator closer some in the like mediterranean countries for example then i would definitely use sunscreen for at least uh, some part of the time um, and if you uh, are taking more breaks like you're only exposed to the sunlight maybe one hour then you're inside for a few hours then you're getting like a one hour or something like that then you probably don't need it but if you are like several hours in a row then it probably is make, makes more sense to use some sunscreen even if, even if it contains some carcinogen compounds most of the sunscreens i think um, like just infrequent exposure isn't isn't generally uh, enough to have like any real negative side effect but the chronic exposure to high uv index of the sunlight for several hours in a row in <laughs> in a region that is uh, very closer to the equator then of course it just makes more sense to use it at that point and if you think that it does it work or not then uh, i mean you have to just go to some of these uh, tropical countries or equatorial countries and uh, especially like spain uh, sicily southern italy those regions people there don't use sun sun sunscreen at all uh, and they have you know they have a long health span and they have a long life expectancy but they definitely look a lot more wrinkled <laughs> because they don't use any sunscreen and they're exposed to the sunlight pretty much uh, year round all the time so uh, yeah i mean you know don't take my word on it i'm not giving any like medical advice that's what i would do if i were to you know anything um, you know spain italy florida Texas, California, though Mississippi, those areas, Hong Kong, those kind of regions, uh, I would use some sunscreen at least uh, maybe infrequently if I were to be exposed several hours to sunlight in a row. All right, that's it for the Q&A. If you want to ask me a question in the future, then make sure you follow me on Instagram at Seamlund. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to support this podcast, then check out our sponsors and leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. My name is Seam. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.